Luke chapter 11, we'll read the first 13 verses. It says, It came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in earth, so in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity or his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, and to he that seeks he finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he ask, or shall ask for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? There was a little boy in a Central American country who grew up in an Orthodox liturgical Christian household. And they were a poor family and he really wanted a new bicycle. And so the months approaching Christmas were coming and he asked his parents if he could have a new bike for Christmas. And they very carefully and gently tried to tell him that they weren't going to have the money for that kind of a gift and and all. And he was extremely disappointed because he wanted that gift. So he continued to ask. The parents said, well, we can't do it, but maybe you could ask Santa Claus. Maybe he'll bring you a bike. They knew this would buy them a little time, but he was on to them. And so he continued to persist. And he said, please, 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 let me have a new bike. And they said, well, we, we really don't have the money, but maybe you could pray. Maybe God will provide a bike for you. And so the little boy went to an upper room in their house where they had a little, you know, prayer room, a shrine, a couple of statues and candles, one of Jesus, one of Mary, and a few others that were there. That was their tradition. And so he goes in there, and he was kind of skeptical and a little bit disheveled as he knelt down, and he looked around the room a little bit, and then he stood up, and he grabbed the statue of Mary off the pedestal, ran into his bedroom, wrapped it in a sheet, and put it under the bed. And then he walked confidently back into the prayer room, knelt down, and this time with a quiet calm, he folded his hands and closed his eyes. And he said, Dear God, if you ever want to see your mother again. (laughs) What is it about prayer that's so difficult for us? What is it that makes us think that we have to either bribe God or approach God in such a specific way 
in order to get him to hear us or that we have to do things just right so that we can obtain from God the things that we need. Why is prayer so difficult even for Christians? Well, we find that even the apostles that walked with Jesus came to that same point of frustration with prayer even though they were with Jesus himself. And that's the context with which we find them here in Luke's Gospel, the 11th chapter. Jesus had just come from the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You know the story. There was a contention between the two sisters because Martha was busily, dutifully serving Jesus, wanting to prepare a perfect meal and make sure that everything was just so while he was there among them. And Mary, the sister who also shared residence there, she didn't help Jesus or help Martha, rather, at all, but she was just sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him speak. And Martha became troubled over Mary's sitting there without helping at all. And so she reproached Mary to Jesus. She said, Jesus, tell my sister Mary to come and help me. And Jesus rebuked her. And he said, Martha, you're troubled with many things. But one thing is needful. And Mary has chosen that good part. And it will not be taken from her. The one thing needful, Martha, is to sit at my feet and to be in communion with me. And that is what Mary has chosen. It will not be taken. The disciples heard that exhortation, perhaps struggling themselves a little bit with the balance between duty and devotion. They then leave with Jesus, and we come to this setting here, where Jesus himself, the one who just said to a group of people that it was their better part to separate and sit at his feet, now we see Jesus, and he's separated in a place by himself praying. And it's in that time that something begins to stir within the heart of the other disciples that would be apostles. And they began to realize something and they say, you know, we've been around prayer our whole lives. But it seems as though we're really lacking in something. We're missing something. We're we're not getting it when it comes to prayer. So when Jesus finishes his time of prayer and rejoins the group, one of the disciples, we're not told which one, asks Jesus the question. He says, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, the interesting thing about it is that that's the only time in all of Jesus' earthly ministry that any of his disciples asked him how to do something. They never asked him how to preach or how to heal, how to raise the dead, how to make it so every fish you catch has a coin in its mouth, how to walk on water or speak leprosy out of a person's flesh. They never asked him how to do any of those things, and they never had done any of those things. But prayer, that was something that they were very familiar with. They had grown up in prayer. All of Jesus' disciples were Jewish by background, and the Jews had mastered the art of prayer. They had prayers for everything that they did. Prayers for when they arose in the morning and when they retired at night. Prayers for when they would see a sunrise and then a sunset. Prayer when they would eat. Prayer when they would walk. Prayer when they would purchase. Prayer when they would see an ocean view. They had prayers for everything, literally, that they did. One famous uh, rabbi of the time is quoted as um, saying that whoever is long in prayer is heard. And so there were those that were experts in prayer. They had also heard Jesus criticize that method of prayer as well. Jesus called them hypocrites. He said that they prayed like the heathen. He said that they used vain repetition. He said that they made their voices loud on the street corners in order to be heard of men, but he said that their voices didn't penetrate heaven at all. 
And so this wrestling match about what is prayer and how do we pray was present even in those that were following with Jesus. But there was a realization that they had. They knew somehow that everything that Jesus was and everything that Jesus did was the result of his communion and connection with the Father. That the reason he preached effectively and healed diseases and was always seemingly in the right place at the right time and always knew how to handle every situation and was never flustered no matter what, they knew that all of those things were the result of his constant and ceaseless communion with his Father that was in heaven. And so they ask the question, they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us how to be praying, literally, to pray like you pray. Now, as much as it amazes me that that's the question that they ask, what amazes me even more is that Jesus answers the question. He gives them an answer. Notice in verse 2, it says, He said unto them, when you pray. First thing, very imperative for you and I as we become students of prayer this morning, is to recognize and realize that prayer is not an option. Jesus didn't say, if you pray, or if you get into the situation where it becomes essential, this is what you need to know. He says, when you pray, because he knew that we would not be able to operate within this life without having a prayer life ourselves. Remember having fire drills when you were in school? Class would be interrupted, and you would rejoice. You were hoping that the school was on fire, but you were okay with with it if it wasn't as long as you would get out of class for just a few minutes. But they were teaching you what to do in case of emergency. If there ever was actually danger, this is how you're to evacuate in the most quick and effective way possible. A lot of Christians view prayer that same way. We want to know how to pray. We want to have that understanding, but we don't really want to practice it. We just want to kind of put it in our pocket in case we ever need it. That's kind of an arrogant attitude, isn't it? I mean, if we look at Jesus, who was God himself, And yet he walked in human flesh. He became a man. He set aside his deity and he walked in a world like us, going through the things that we go through. And what do we see in his life? We see that Jesus was constantly dependent on his Father through prayer. If Jesus needed to pray constantly, then how do we think that we're going to be able to navigate this life without prayer? You say, okay, but why? Because I'm that kind of person, and I just like to ask why. Why do I have to be in constant communication with the Father? Here's why. Because your vanishing point is very shallow. In other words, you can't see that far or that broad into what's going on in your life. God, who's in heaven, sees all things. And you are in a relationship with him. And now what happens is that you have access to the one who promises to shepherd you and lead you from where you are to where you're ultimately supposed to be. And he's the only one that can do it. Every relationship that doesn't have communication will ultimately break down. If you're married, you know that. If you don't communicate regularly with your spouse, that lack of communication becomes a wedge between you and it ultimately drives you apart. Assumptions and mind games begin to play and you could be worlds apart. Just because of lack of communication. Perhaps you're employed somewhere or you're in a business and the communication is a real problem. There's communication chaos. And people aren't kind of communicating with what's going on and so things are being left undone or things are being twice. The reason is because there's a lack of communication. Relationships break down. If you've ever seen a sports team where there's no communication amongst the players or between the coaches and the players, you see that things just break down. It doesn't work. There needs to be communication. The same thing is true for us individually as we seek to navigate walking with the Lord in this world. 
Every now and again, someone tries to swim across either the English Channel or the 90-mile span of water between Key West and Cuba. It happened just this past year. Now put yourself in that speedo for a minute. Not in your mind. Can you imagine trying to make that swim all by yourself without any help at all from someone either in a boat right beside you that had GPS or something in your ear or someone somewhere that via satellite could somehow tell you what would happen? You would die. I used to be on a swim team, and when the lane markers weren't in the pool, I would just go like this, and I would flip turn on the wrong wall. I couldn't even make it across a pool in a straight line without having something to guide me. And here we are, we're walking through this world. God's got a plan, a destiny for us. We cannot get there without his help, without him guiding us. Sometimes I feel like I'm swimming across the English Channel. Maybe you do too. You ever wake up one day and you're like, what the heck am I doing? Where am I? And all of a sudden you realize, you know what? I'm not as close in communion with God as I should be. Lord, I need to check in. Am I where I'm supposed to be? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? It's essential. So Jesus says, when you pray. Now the proof of its essentialness is that we see the effect of it in Jesus' life. Look at how effective he was. He never missed a beat, never wasted a move, never missed an appointment. He was always where he was supposed to be in the will of God in perfect peace. Because he was in communion with his father. How much more do we need it? Well, now he tells them this prayer, so to speak, or this method of prayer. And it breaks down three ways if you're taking notes. It breaks into three sections. Number one is relationship. Number two is substance. That is what to pray for. And then number three is mindset. He answers a few doubts that people have concerning prayer. One more thing before we get into it, and this is important. If you hear nothing else, at least hear this is that what Jesus is not giving in this passage of Scripture is a prayer to pray. The disciples did not say, Lord, teach us a prayer. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And what Jesus gives to them is a framework, something that you can pray through as you pray to the Father. You can do it in two minutes, but you could also do it in two hours as you go through and just use this as a guide to help you as you commune and connect with heaven. And so it begins, the first part is relationship. He says at the very beginning there, he says, when you pray, say, our Father. This was by far the most revolutionary prayer word of instruction that they had ever heard. Although God, from time to time throughout the Old Testament, had been referred to as Father in certain contexts, he had never been referred to as Father in the context of prayer. He was not to be approached with that type of intimacy and that type of simplicity. The headings for their prayers would be things like sovereign, transcendent, eternal spirit, creator of all things. And the more grandiose it was, the more they thought that they would be heard. Well, Jesus says when you come, when you address who you're speaking to, make it as simple as father. It's pater in the Greek, but Abba in the Aramaic, which was the language they spoke. They would say Abba. It's the English word that we would translate daddy. But that's the way that they were to come to God when they prayed. With that kind of childlike humility and simplicity. Abba, Daddy, when you come. That's the heart of how God comes. And here's the point, is that prayer must always be birthed out of relationship. It's not out of ritual. It's not out of religion. It's not out of requirement. It's out of relationship. He has bought us by his blood. He's redeemed us to himself. He's committed himself to us. And therefore, he asks us to call upon him in those simple terms. My son, uh, Riley, my two-year-old, he is the life right now. 
you know, that age. And he's the early riser, and I'm the other early riser. So I was up this morning, I was sitting by the wood stove, and I was eating a bowl of cold cereal and milk. And he comes down, and he sits on the couch, and he just looks at me. And we do this every morning, and then I, you know, we talk a little bit, and he's got incredible vocabulary for a two-year-old. And he hops off the couch, and he slowly walks over to where I am sitting there, and he looks into my bowl. And then he lifts his eyes up and makes eye contact with me. And in perfect silence for like four seconds. And then he goes, have some? Now my father wisdom said, I'm catching a little bit of a cold. This isn't the season to be sharing spoons. I'm not sure. And and, and I waited out, but then I said, yeah. (laughs) And we shared a bowl of cold cereal. Me and Riley there, his head getting closer and closer into the bowl as we went. But the priceless opportunity to have an intimate moment and sharing my resources with my son as we commune together there by the wood stove. And that's the heart of what Jesus is saying, that when you come to God, it's not formal. It's not religious. It's not supposed to be that kind of a thing but it's supposed to be simple, intimate, personal, and relational. We've been begotten of him. He cares for us. He's committed to us. He's going to teach us all things. He will comfort and complete what he's began, and he will supply our needs. And Here's the application, is that if we approach prayer from a ritualistic mind, it will always fall flat and die. It must be birthed out of a relationship between son or daughter and father. Such a simple way to approach God. He also says that he's in heaven and that he's holy. And that warns us that there is a reverence to the way that we come. Yes, he's daddy. Yes, he's father. Yes, he will complete what he began. But he is also in heaven, which means he sees all and knows all. And he is also holy, which means he is perfect. He is perfect light. And he is perfectly just. And so that's the context with which we come to him. It's in our relationship with a heavenly father who purchased us, but who is also holy and who sees all things. Then he gets into the substance, part two of this, where he gives them six things, or six areas of life where they can pray. And they're very simple, again, as we look at them. Number one is perspective. Perspective. He says that when you say, pray, say, thy kingdom come. Now that's a great prologue for all prayer. That is that everything that we say after we say this, will be said with the backdrop drawn that we want his kingdom to come, that we're living for heaven, that this earth is not our home. And when that is the perspective that we have in prayer, it makes our prayers short and effective. Because sometimes, you know, we come and we pray and we say, Lord, should I buy that fourth house on the Hawaiian coast, you know, right now? Is this a a good time to do that? But we begin by saying, thy kingdom come. We're living for heaven. This earth is not our home. It's all going to burn. It's like the guy who bought the brand new BMW and he was so excited, he waited so long to finally have it, that status symbol. And he was coming around a corner too fast and he flipped the guardrail and rolled it six times. By the time the EMTs got to him there, he was trapped in the vehicle and they finally got it open. And all they could hear from inside the car was him saying, my BMW, my BMW, my BMW. And the one EMT looked at him and he said, sir, you've got bigger things to worry about than that. Your left arm is severed at the elbow. And the man just looked down and then he said, My Rolex. My Rolex. My Rolex. But sometimes I think that that's our mindset when we approach God in prayer. We are so consumed with the here and now, the things of earth, that we leave off the fact that our destination is ultimately heaven. And that's where God wants to bring us. 
And so our perspective is, thy kingdom come. Number two, the second area there is circumstance. He says, when you pray, say, thy will be done. And it speaks of the circumstances of life. Now, every single one of us find ourselves in circumstances that are way too complex for us to figure out or navigate our way through them. And so the question that we have in those things is, how do we then pray about something that we don't even understand? And oftentimes that keeps us from praying about it. Now, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, he said that your Father in heaven already knows the things that you need of before you even ask him. So God already sees the whole picture laid out, but he still tells us to ask. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, it says, Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. So how do we do that? How do I pray about something that I don't understand when I already know that he understands it? The answer is right here. You lift up the circumstance to him and you say, Father, thy will be done. And what you're doing when you pray, thy will be done, is you are taking God's sovereignty, the fact that he is over and that he sees all things, and God's ability that he can do all things, and you're coupling it with your insufficiency. And you're putting those two things together. And so what you've done is you've joined your weakness with his strength and given him the permission to work out what you don't understand. And what I love about this is that it's so incredibly generic. That it can apply to any circumstance that any person ever finds themselves in, even without having to, 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 to try to get out to God all the details of all the complex things that are involved in it. You could be going through uh, some things in um, your job or in your career situation that are too complex for you. Or you're unemployed, or you're in a relationship that's been strained, and there's complex issues there, and you don't know how it can work out or what God might be able to do. Or there might be an issue with your health or the health of someone who's close to you and it's something where the doctors, they don't have an answer for it. It's too complex for you. Or with parenting or with future planning or you may have gotten yourself into some kind of trouble and now you're facing the consequences of it and you say, how could God possibly work? What could possibly come of all of this? And what Jesus is saying is that your father cares enough about you that you can come to him with whatever that is and you can say your will be done and here's what God's going to do is that he's going to work that situation out to the very best outcome for you. And we don't know what that is, but he promises it's going to be the very best outcome it could be for you. And so he says, pray, thy will be done. The next thing that he says there, the third thing, deals with provision. He says, when you pray, say, give us day by day our daily bread. Earlier last year, the president got himself into a little bit of trouble Because he spoke in a speech and he was talking about um, business owners, entrepreneurs, people of that nature. And he he made the statement, he said that you didn't build that. And he got in trouble for that. Because what he was implying is that nobody could have built a business or designed a product or been successful without some help or assistance from the government somewhere. Now, I don't know if that's true or if that's false. That doesn't matter. But this is what I do know. I know that the Bible says that every single thing that any one of us possesses comes from God. That if you have a job, if you have talents, if you run a business, if you have food to eat, if you're wearing clothes, if you can breathe and walk, that all of that comes directly from the God of heaven. It didn't come from you. The Bible says that he causes the sun and the rain 
to shine and to fall on the just and the unjust alike. The Bible says that the Lord is the one who gives the ability to gain wealth. It doesn't come from talent. It doesn't come from inheritance. It doesn't come from maneuverability or politics. Psalm 145 says that he opens his hand and he satisfies the desire of every living thing. Even to Pilate, who was an unjust ruler, Jesus said, you could have no power at all unless it were given to you by God. And Jesus said to a group of disciples, that's us, he said, consider the sparrows and the flowers. He said, they neither toil nor spin, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them, and they're clothed with greater majesty even than Solomon was in all of his splendor. Of how much more value are you than the sparrows or the lilies? And how much more will God feed you and clothe you? And thus the heart of our Father is that we can call on him for our daily provision. There are two systems that exist for you and I whereby provision can take place. Number one is the world system. The world system says that if you work, invest, if you sow and reap, if you store up, then you can rest in your stored resources long into your retirement. That's the system that most of us kind of elect for in this society, be it because of our cultural upbringing or be it because of our human fallen nature, is that we're taught to not rely on anyone else. So you store it up, sow it, invest it, and then you reap it and enjoy it later in life. And we kind of rest in that. That becomes our daily bread, so to speak. Well, I've kind of done this. See, the benefit of that situation is that it's very comfortable, but it's very unreliable. Because we rest in what we have in the bank account or what we've accrued for whatever over time, but all of that can fall out like that. And then it's gone. And if that's what you were resting in, then what are you going to go through then? The other system is what the Bible calls the daily bread system. That is this, is that you rely on him each moment, day by day, to provide for your needs. Yes, you still work. Yes, you still go with the program and do the things, but you recognize in your mind that all things come from him. And that he's the one that provides, not a paycheck or a dollar or an IRA or anything else. It all comes from God. And here's the problem with living that way. Well, I guess the problem is, is that it's not quite as comfortable, but it's much more reliable. Because God's word will always come to pass. But he says that our prayer has a part to play in it. Number four, I call cleansing. It's in verse four. He says, when you pray, say, forgive us, our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Now, here's the amazing thing about this part of the framework of prayer, this forgive us our sins. I honestly would have thought that this would be number one on the list. That before I dare pray a prayer asking for God's will in my circumstance or for God's provision for my need, that I better make sure that I'm cleansed and clear of my conscience and my sin list before him. Why is this number four and not number one? Here's why. Because every one of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ, when you made that transaction with God to be saved and to have his name written upon you and your name written in his book, Jesus Christ himself took an itemized list of every sin you ever committed, past, present, and future, even the ones you haven't done yet. And he checked off each one and he agreed to pay the price for every one of them. He agreed. He checked them off one by one. He said, I'll pay for that. 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 I'll pay. We're going to be here for a while. I'll pay for that. I'll pay for 
And he goes down the whole list of everything that you ever did, sees everyone, and he agrees to absorb the wrath and pay the price for every one of those sins. And then when it's all done, he seals it up, he nails it to his cross, and then he tears off a blank sheet of paper and he says, this is my list um, and I'm going to give it to you. This is, this is now your sin list. In the chronicles of heaven, this is what God sees when God looks at you. And he looks at your paper and it's absolutely blank. So you come to God and you say, Father, thy will be done. And he looks at the sheet and there's nothing there. It's not written. There's, it's blank. He sees you in the perfection of Jesus Christ because you're in Christ. You say, okay, well then why do we have to pray this at all? Why is this even an ingredient in the, the list here? Here's why. Because although your account is cleared in heaven because of Jesus, the effects of sin are still present in our flesh here on earth. And sin still has the power to bind you, to destroy you, and take you out. And thus it's imperative that the power of that sin not grab a hold of our lives or have its way in doing what sin does. And the way that that happens is through confession. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says this. It says that, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from our sins. The word cleanse means to catheterize or to, to remove the impurity. It means that he breaks the power of that sin. And as we come to him and we confess our sins... It breaks sin's power within our lives. And thus it's important for cleansing. Now listen, while we're in this flesh, we're saved, we're clean. But let me ask you a question. How often do you take a shower? Hopefully daily or at least bi-daily, you know? Why? Because if you don't, then you start to stink because we're defiled. And sin, walking in this world, attaches itself to us, sometimes by our choice and sometimes just because. And the way of cleansing is by confession. There's another aspect to this confession, and that is that we forgive those that have also wronged us. See, when you have someone do something wrong against you, and you hang on to that, that becomes a source of bitter defilement within you, just the same as if you had done the sin. And so cleansing, you have to release those debts. If you, if you hold on to something that someone has done to you, for whatever the reason is, you're defiled by that thing. And that's why Jesus said, in order for you to be clean, those things must be let go. And so he brings up that aspect. So cleansing is a part of our prayer. Then number five, and this is the reason why I read this in the King James this morning. You're probably wondering, why are we using this archaic translation? Here's the reason, because the King James is the only version that gets it right in this translation, in this part of it. Uh, and, and number five for your notes concerns leading. And it says there again in verse four, it says, and lead us. New King James, it says, and do not lead us into temptation. And it, it doesn't make a distinction between the leading and the temptation, but in the language it does. See, part of the prayer is, Lord, lead us. Did you know that 99% of answered prayer comes in the form of God leading you? That's his method, the way that he does it. I don't know anyone who has ever seen Jesus personally. I know that we've all probably hoped that at some point Jesus would show up in a quiet place and just talk to us face-to-face -face and give us clear, dulcet instructions. But he doesn't do that. The way that he answers prayer is by leading us. How did God get David from the sheepfold into the palace? He led him. David's father said, David, go and see how your brothers are doing. It was there that Goliath's head came off. From there, David landed a job in the palace playing the harp. From there, Saul was jealous and chased David for ten years. 
But in that time, David was learning how to lead and be the greatest shepherd Israel would ever have until God would bring him into the palace. How did God lead him, or, you know, move? He led him. How did Abraham go from Ur of the Chaldees, a pagan Babylonian colony, to Canaan, where he would, with his descendants, inherit land forever? God led him. And thus and so it goes on and on. How did God lead Joseph from the slavery of Potiphar's house through the prison into the palace of Egypt? How did God do it? He led him. And how does God work in our lives? He leads us. We lay our circumstances before him. We invite his will into any circumstance that we're in. And then we follow him. And as we do, he puts us in the right place at the right time to have the right conversation at the right time. Or he opens up a door that's just so outstanding, it blows our mind. And we find ourselves walking in his will. But a part of that leading is our praying. Lord, lead me. That today I don't miss perhaps something that will change me for the rest of my life. And so he says, pray, lead us. And then finally, number six is protection. He says, when you pray, say, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Every single one of us here has a weakness or weaknesses that if we were to give in to them, or if those things were to grab a strong enough hold of our life, they would wipe us out and destroy us. And you have an enemy that watches your life constantly, who's planning and plotting, who wants to take you out. But God, the Bible says, is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle. But a part of being protected is our prayer, saying, Lord, please protect us from that evil and keep us from that temptation. And so Jesus gives to them this framework. And again, as I said, you can pray through this in a couple of minutes, if that's all you've got. Or you can spend hours just meditating, going through little by little, and asking God through every circumstance of your life to have his way in your will. That every day or in every, every need that you have to give you provision and the energy that you need or the time that you need or the wisdom that you need or the food or the money that you need or whatever it is that you need to lay those provisions before him one by one. And you can just seek the Lord in such a simple way as Jesus gave um, this thing. And so he gives them the substance of this prayer. And then part three, which is probably the most important in Jesus' exhortation on prayer, is the mindset. What's the mindset that we're to have in prayer? And here's why this is important. Because I suspect that the disciples at this point in the conversation or in the teaching, their hearts sank a little bit. And here's why. Because this isn't the first time Jesus taught on prayer. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, which happened probably a year or two years before this point, Jesus taught on prayer. And do you know what Jesus taught? The same thing. That we read in Matthew chapter 6. When you pray, say, Our Father. And now, this much time later, he's telling them to say the same thing again. And I can hear them in their hearts saying, We tried that. We still don't feel like we're connecting. We still feel like there's an obstacle. There's something that's not working right. So, so what gives here? And that's why Jesus then goes into this mindset portion as he tells these two parables. Look at verse 5. He says, He said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? And shall say unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in the bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say to you that though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, the Hebrew, uh, I'm sorry, the Yiddish translation of this was chutzpah. (laughs) I thought that was great because it just means bold audacity. He will rise and give him as many as he needs. Now the disciples at this point are saying, yes, exactly. That's exactly my issue with prayer. 
It's issue number one, and that's this, is that I know God can answer my prayer. I don't think he's willing. I know he has all power, but I don't think that he's going to employ that power in my circumstance and in my situation. And in answer to that, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he gives to them this parable. But this is not a parable of comparison. It's a uh, a parable of contrast. And that is this is that we do not come to God as a grumpy neighbor. He is not a grumpy neighbor that's too busy and in bed and doesn't have time to hear our prayers or care about our needs, but rather we come to him as a loving father. See, I remember early on in my Christian life, there was this whole move that was kind of going through the church at that time. It was called the breakthrough. Have you ever heard of the breakthrough? That that you have to storm heaven with your prayers and with your persistence, and eventually you'll get the breakthrough. And I used to have this picture in my mind that I had to kind of like, with prayer, peel back the clouds. Like if I, I, I don't know how, if I'm at a thick point here or a thin point, but I have to break through and somehow reach heaven with what God has. And I would hear Christians say, I got a breakthrough. I got a breakthrough. And I'd be like, oh, I can't wait till I get one. And oftentimes that's our concept of prayer, is that God doesn't really want to answer my prayer, but if I beg enough, he will. Here's the truth in what Jesus is saying is that prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. He wants to help us. He's willing to help us. Not a grumpy neighbor, a loving father. And so Jesus says, ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. And it's all in the continual tense. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. Stay in close communion and companionship with the Father. The second opposition that people have, reason they don't pray, is the thing that Jesus addresses in the second little parable there in verse 11. He says, If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? And the, the, the obstacle here is this, is that be careful what you pray for. See, I'm afraid that if I really pray to God that he would work in my situation, I might not like the outcome. I might pray, God, put me in your perfect will, and God will put me in Guatemala or Costa Rica. And I don't want to go to Guatemala and Costa Rica. I heard there's scorpions there, you know. Or God's going to send me to a rocky desert or something. And, And we get this fear in us that if we pray, that God's going to do something that's going to greatly ruffle our feathers. And what Jesus is saying is, look, he's gentle. He's a father. He knows what you need. He knows you better than you know yourself. And so you don't have to worry that if you pray, God in some way is going to answer in a way that will harm you. That's not what he's going to do. And then the the last thing that he says there is um, this in verse 13. He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Now, when I read this, I ask the question, I say, why did you bring the Holy Spirit up now? In Matthew, it just says, give good gifts. But here he says, the Holy Spirit. So why does Jesus attach this addendum of he will give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? Here's why I think. I think it attaches or goes right back to their initial question at the beginning. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. We don't have the same initiation drive in us to pray that we see in you. We don't feel like we know how or that we have that instant communication of just going to God so easily. And I believe Jesus has given them a clue as to why right here. It could be that you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit again. It could be that you've gone dry, that the Spirit has oozed out of your life, 
And you've lost that sense of God's peace, God's love, and God's life. And that's the very thing that draws us to him. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 says this. It says, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The very nature of the Holy Spirit is to call out to the Abba of our Father. And thus, if you're filled with His Spirit, it's going to be a natural drive within you to call out to the Lord. So maybe you need to be filled with the Spirit is what Jesus is suggesting to them. So what's the takeaway from all of this? Here's what it is. It boils down to this in its simplicity. is that if prayer is based upon sonship or relationship, then am I, are we, in that relationship with God? If it's as simple as a child coming to a parent, then are we children of that parent? John chapter 1, verse 12 says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, the sons and the daughters of God. Have you received Jesus Christ? Have you laid before him that itemized list of all of your sins? Listen, you could never read it. Just give him the whole packet. But have you brought it to him and said, Lord, I can't deal with this. This is what's holding me back from knowing you. And brought it to Jesus who willingly says, let me look at that. And allowed him to wash you of your sins so that you could call upon him and be his son. That's the whole thing behind it. So if Jesus, the son of man, was the living demonstration of what life is intended by God to be, And the source of that life is in a life of prayer and communion. And if prayer is as simple as talking to our Father, the question for us is, will you pray? We're going to take communion this morning. The worship team is going to come. The ushers are going to come forward and begin to hand out the elements. And as they come, I just want to read this to you. Abraham's servant prayed, and Rebekah appeared. Jacob prayed and prevailed, and Esau's mind was turned after 20 years of vengeance. Moses prayed and Amalek was struck. Joshua prayed when Israel was struck and Achan was discovered. Hannah prayed and Samuel was born. David prayed and Ahithophel, his enemy, was defeated. Asa prayed and victory was gained. Jehoshaphat prayed and God turned away his enemies. Isaiah and Hezekiah prayed and 185,000 Assyrians were dead in 12 hours. Daniel prayed and the lions were muzzled. Daniel prayed again, and the prophecy of the rest of history was given to him. Mordecai and Esther prayed, and Haman, who wanted to destroy the Jews, was hanged on his own gallows. Ezra prayed, and God answered. Nehemiah prayed, and the king's heart was softened in a moment. Elijah prayed, and a three-year drought came. He prayed again, and it rained. Elisha prayed, and a child's soul came back to life. Believers prayed, and Peter was released from prison and appeared at the door. What are you going through here this morning? And what isn't God willing to work with in your life? Maybe there's a prodigal son or daughter and it's just beyond what you can handle. Maybe you're in a situation where you need work. It's driven you to a point of depression. And you need God to intervene. Maybe there's a calling and you can sense it somewhere in your life, but you don't know where it is. What is your need this morning? Will you pray? Father, we just pray that you would prepare our hearts to take this communion.